Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I remember when I was five, my dad was playing the piano in the next room from my bed, and I heard that beautiful melody that just touched me immediately. The next morning, when I said, what was that song that you were playing yesterday? He said, you are still little one, so please don't even think about it. Forget it. When you will be adult, it will be okay, but now it's not. That's Laszlo Marosi, a Hungarian music conductor. He's talking about a song composed by Rezo Sheres in the early 1930s. Rezo Sheres was growing up in a very poor Jewish family in Hungary, but he didn't go to school to learn the piano. He himself just was sitting from the piano and with right hand started to uh, discover the keyboard, what kind of sound is coming from what note. There's not much known about Sheres' early life, except that he aspired to become a famous songwriter. So he did what other aspiring songwriters did. He moved to Paris. Paintings, arts, theater, everything. Paris was the center. He had a girlfriend with him, so he thought that the doors of life are opening for him. In Paris, Cheres composed many songs, many of them now unheard of. He was trying to live the life of a big-time composer. But there was one problem. He was not a big-time composer. Everyone thought, who is this amateur? He didn't really succeed in Paris. He did not succeed at all. His girlfriend nagged him constantly, telling him to give up his dream, get a 9-to-5 job. But he wouldn't have it. Either he'd become a successful songwriter and change the world, or he'd live out on the streets. 
when she saw that he didn't become famous, he didn't get the money, he, he, he didn't succeed the way how they expected. So she just said, okay, bye-bye. And bye-bye went the love of his life. The day after their breakup, which happened to be a Sunday, Sherish found himself alone in his apartment. Like the many fruitless times before, he started tapping away at the piano, trying to capture the emotions from the fresh breakup. And that moment in that gloomy afternoon on that Sunday, a sad and mysterious melody started to appear in the mind of Sherish. At a musical performance on the outskirts of Budapest, two different men shot themselves. Meanwhile, in multiple homes across the city, dead bodies were discovered lying next to the gramophone. Several more bodies were pulled from the Danube River, firmly clutching crumpled pieces of paper to their breast. It wasn't until police investigated the death of shoemaker Joseph Keller that the pieces began to fit together. Near Keller's body, they found a note that quoted the lyrics to a recent hit song, Gloomy Sunday. Retracing their steps, they discovered that the band where the pair of men shot themselves was playing Gloomy Sunday. The gramophones at the homes where the bodies were found beside them had last played the same song. And the paper the bodies were clutching in the river? The sheet music to Gloomy Sunday. The police knew they had a problem. February 23rd, Budapest. 18 suicides attributed to Gloomy Song. 18 suicides attributed to one song convince Budapest police tonight that the tune menaces the welfare of Hungary and must be suppressed. A decision was reached when police received a letter from the 18th suicide, Joseph Keller, a shoemaker asking them to put on his grave the 100 roses mentioned in the song, Gloomy Sunday. The words are by Ladislaus Yavor, and the music, Rudolf Suresh. Victims of the song include all ages and classes and both sexes. Two shot themselves while listening to gypsies draw the melancholy tune from their violins. Others hanged, poisoned, or gassed themselves, some while their gramophones were reproducing the canned version. Two maids smashed furniture and ruined paintings and tapestry before killing themselves while their employers played the song. Working quickly, authorities banned the song from being played on the radio and spread the word to other cities. In Germany, a shopkeeper hanged herself, a copy of the gloomy Sunday sheet music on the floor beneath her feet. With the song playing, an 80-year-old man jumped from his seventh-story window. In Rome, an errand boy passed by a beggar man who was humming the song. And, as if he was in a trance, the boy gave the destitute man all of his money, then jumped in the river and drowned. In London, a woman purposely overdosed on barbiturates while listening to the song. The BBC banned it. 
1936, the New York Times reported the death of a 13-year-old boy in Michigan, Floyd Hamilton. That same year, in New York, a college student, Philip Cook, shot himself in his fraternity house. Cook had told family members that he couldn't get the song out of his head. April 6, Sturgis, Michigan. Boy's suicide linked with words of song. County officers linked the words of a Hungarian suicide tango today with the death of Floyd Hamilton Jr., 13-year-old Sturgis schoolboy found hanged at his home Sunday. A clipping of the song, banned in Hungary because of its depressing effect and its connection with many Sabbath suicides there, was found in the boy's clothing, officers said. The boy's father said he had been despondent because plans for a visit with his mother, Mrs. Jess German, at Angola, Indiana, had not materialized. He had been living here with his father and stepmother. Floyd's body was found hanging from a ceiling fixture in the living room of the home when Mr. and Mrs. Hamilton returned home from a visit with friends. The song, Gloomy Sunday, was banned in Hungary after a series of bizarre suicide pacts had brought it to government attention. May 23rd, Geneva, New York. Suicide saddens commencement at New York College. Commencement exercises opened at Hobart College today, saddened by the suicide of a senior class member. Philip Tangier Smith Cook, 24, who shot himself fatally early yesterday with a 22 caliber rifle in the Sigma Phi fraternity house, will receive his diploma posthumously Monday, a statement by President Murray Bartlett said. Coroner Frank A. Snyder issued a formal verdict of suicide after an inquest which failed to disclose a motive for Cook's act. He was the son of a Springfield, Ohio Episcopal minister. College authorities said his scholastic standing was satisfactory. A friend testified at the inquest that Cook had memorized the song Gloomy Sunday, recently held responsible for many suicides in Hungary, and Cook considered it beautiful. Another testified, the coroner said, that Cook had told him he drove into the country last Sunday with the intention of committing suicide, but lost his nerve. Cook promised, the witness testified, quote, he would never think of it again. A third witness testified that two hours before he shot himself, Cook told a group of friends at a hotel, quote, it's gloomy Sunday, I'm going to do it tonight. July 10th, Chicago. Suicide song prompts death. Faye Randall, 25, a dancer, sat listening to a phonograph record early today in her hotel room. It was the weird, haunting music of Gloomy Sunday, the Hungarian suicide song. Suddenly she arose and left the room, saying to her roommate, Miss Florine Manners, also a dancer, quote, I can't stand it anymore. A short time later, Marion Lundell, a photograph salesman, crossed the State Street Bridge and saw a pretty brunette leaning against the rail, 
and staring into the water. He recrossed the bridge later and picked up Miss Randall's purse and two slippers. In the purse was a note which said, quote, Florine, I said you would be sorry, and you will be. Faye. Miss Manners admitted she and her roommate had quarreled last night. Coast Guardsmen started to drag the river today. The English translation of the song was subsequently banned in several American cities and states. A man in Indianapolis, Jerry Flanders, hired a musician to play the song at a bar. Police passing by heard the song and rushed in. Jerry was arrested, and it was discovered that he had poisoned his own beer. But soon enough, World War II overshadowed the hysteria. Thirty years later, in June 1968, the man responsible for Gloomy Sunday, the song's original composer, Rezo Suresh, killed himself twice. First, he threw himself off his own balcony. Okay, he tried to kill himself the first time, but he survived the fall. He was rushed to the hospital where a few days later, once he'd regained enough strength, Suresh strangled himself to death with the length of wire doctors had used to hold his broken limbs in place. Suresh was born Rudy Spitzer in Budapest in 1889. He dropped out of high school and ran away to join the circus, literally, now calling himself Rezo Suresh, Rez for short. Suresh was small and agile and trained for the trapeze, but a significant fall cut his career short. He auditioned for drama school on crutches. For the next nine years, he supported himself performing for predominantly drunk audiences in small country theaters and random variety shows. There was often a piano in these venues, and Suresh started dabbling with songwriting. A theater director heard him playing and hauled the piano out into the street to attract the attention of passers-by and drum up some business. Rez had never been shy, but he was shy about playing his music in public, at first. But he found his voice. In 1925, he published his first song, One More Night. It was a minor hit, selling 18,000 copies. Rez went from a penniless street performer to a respected composer, with a steady job in a warm restaurant and a paying audience. For the first time in his life, he had a stable existence. What followed were 10 years of intensely prolific composition. He wrote more than 60 songs and the lyrics to 40 others, and worked with some of the best musicians of his day. He became moderately famous. In 1933, Suresh wrote an extremely melancholy, morose song called, originally, The World is Ending. The lyrics were about despair and sin. It is autumn and the leaves are falling. All love has died on earth. The wind is weeping with sorrowful tears. My heart will never hope for a new spring again. My tears and my sorrows are all in vain. People are heartless, greedy, and wicked. Love has died. The world has come to its end. Hope has ceased to have a meaning. Cities are being wiped out. Shrapnel is making music. Meadows are colored red with human blood. 
There are dead people on the streets everywhere. I will say another quiet prayer. People are sinners, Lord. They make mistakes. The world has ended. Soon enough, a poet friend of Suresh named Laszlo Yavor rewrote the lyrics and changed the title of the song to Gloomy Sunday. In Yavor's version, the main protagonist commits suicide because his lover has died. The song went virtually unnoticed at first, but the time was right for this resigned-to-turmoil, love-is-pain kind of theme as listeners took stock of the world around them. Adolf Hitler had come to power in Germany. Economic catastrophe loomed everywhere. Another world war, once an impossibility, now seemed imminent. A 1935 version of Gloomy Sunday by Paul Kalmar was connected to a rash of suicides in Hungary. Stories circulated about the song's sheet music being found beside dead bodies. It made for grisly international headlines, sparking countless rumors and even more record sales. 
To write about suicide in a song, to give voice to something so taboo and so dark, was unprecedented for popular music. The song was banned in some places, but as the saying goes, any press is good press, and music publishers from America and England soon came calling. Tin Pan Alley tunesmith Sam M. Lewis and British theater lyricist Desmond Carter each wrote their own English translation of the song. Carter's version, which was recorded by Paul Robeson that same year, was narratively similar to Yavor's, ending with the same ominous words, last of all Sundays. Lewis's version added a third redemptive verse where the lover pulls back from the brink, but not before saying, my heart and I have decided to end it all. It was still about wanting to escape love's pain through death, but in the end, hope was restored and love remained possible. It was Lewis's hopeful, maybe, version, recorded in 1936 by Hal Kemp and his orchestra, that caught on. song reached Paris, Ray Ventura and his band started performing it, milking the song's reputation for all it was worth. First, the drummer would get up and pretend to shoot himself in the head. Next came the trumpeter with a knife to the chest. Then a waiter would bring a cup of poison for the sax player. Eventually, Ventura was the only one left alive on stage, until the final verse, when a noose was lowered down from above. Despite conflicting reports, the song was never officially banned in the United States, though it was in England. In the early 40s, the BBC deemed the song too upsetting for the public, then later said that only instrumental versions could be played on the radio. Author seeks to atone for suicide song. Ladislaus Yavor, author of the song Gloomy Sunday, that has been blamed for about two that has been blamed for more than 200 suicides throughout the world, introduced his Ten Commandments of a Happy Life in an effort to atone for his morbid torch song. It was not my fault that my simple chanson became a funeral march of a dying Europe, Yavor said. 
All that I am able to do now is balance my account of responsibility and spread the propaganda of happiness and joyfulness. He contemplated making a European lecture tour to spread his Ten Commandments, which are 1. To be gloomy means to be ill. 2. Start your day with happy songs. 3. Before starting your day's work, have at least a glance at a beautiful woman. It encourages work. 4. Have flowers, animals, and girls around you. It banishes desolation. 5. Love is the best means of rejuvenation. 6. Before going to bed, execute two or three dance steps. 7. The color of your bedroom should be turquoise blue, not yellow ochre. 8. Eat only enough to get an appetite for drink, and drink only enough to get an appetite to eat. 9. Do all that your will dictates, and many impossible appearing things may become possible. 10. Disdain money, for you may make more this way. Yavor said he was unaware as to exactly how many suicides his gloomy Sunday song had caused, but understood it was more than 200. I didn't want all this, he said. In 1941, Billie Holiday recorded what is probably the definitive version of Gloomy Sunday. same year, with war breaking out across Europe, the song's Jewish composer found himself dragged off to a forced labor camp where he spent the next four years. Most prisoners were either worked or starved to death, but Suresh survived thanks to a music-loving Nazi officer who'd seen him play in his previous life. In 1945, he clawed his way home to a bombed-out Budapest to find his wife had left him for another man and his beloved mother had died in a Ukrainian camp. But people needed music more than ever before, and Rez soon found work and his audience again. He was reunited with his beloved piano, and eventually with his wife, too. 1947 saw Hungary taken over by a ruthless Stalinist dictatorship. Rez's music was banned because his songs did not glorify the revolution the band would not be lifted until two years after Stalin's death. During that wasteland of time, Gloomy Sunday continued to be recorded and performed across the globe. The publishing company that had originally released Gloomy Sunday had folded after the war, and with the establishment of communism, Hungary was cut off from the U.S. market. Suresh had no way to retrieve his royalties. There was reportedly $370,000 waiting for him in America 
but he had no way to get it. Gloomy Sunday was eventually translated into 28 languages. Luminaries like Ray Charles, Louis Armstrong, Bing Crosby, and Frank Sinatra all sang it. Elvis too. Costello, that is. I wake and I find you asleep in the deep of my heart. Yeah. Dreaming, it was lonely dreaming. I felt my heart melt when I dreamt that we two were apart, far apart. Sunday is gloomy, my hours are slumberless, dearest the shadows I live with are little white flowers will never awaken you, not where the black porch of sorrow has taken you. When the commie ban on music was finally lifted in 1954, Rez found work again, just down the road from where he used to play before the war, 20 years on and his audience still remembered him and his music. Rez appeared as he always had, neatly dressed in his one good suit, smiling, joking, seducing the audience with his charm, but he jumped at the sound of doorbells and shrank from the sight of men in uniform. He lived a quiet life of simplicity and discipline too poor to afford his own piano, he had the keys of the piano painted onto his kitchen table. Every afternoon before work, which was two blocks from his home, Rez would practice in silence. But his muse never came to him again. There would be no more songs. In 1956, the Hungarian Revolution broke out. Hungary was the first of the Soviet bloc countries to rebel. It looked like they may succeed but the Soviets invaded instead. Over 2,500 civilians were killed. What followed was a brutal consolidation of Soviet power. Eventually, the reins were loosened and the Soviets experimented with a softer version of communism. A degree of privatization was allowed. Consumer goods entered the country more freely, including radios, records, and televisions. All became a part of Hungarian life as did rock and roll. This would spell the end for Rez. Rez still hung around throughout the 60s, playing his songs for a dwindling audience, singing with an increasingly hoarse voice, as if in a trance. His downstairs neighbor later told a story about Rez, quote, he always used to listen to Gloomy Sunday every day, precisely between two and six, one version of the song after another. Suresh once wrote of his conflicted emotions involving his morbid masterpiece, quote, I stand in the midst of this deadly success as an accused man. This fatal fame hurts me. I cried all of the disappointments of my heart into this song, and it seems that others with feelings like mine have found their own hurt in it. Sunday. 
My own personal favorite version of Gloomy Sunday is probably the 1992 version by the disturbingly avant-garde Satanist Diamanda Galas. Speaking of Satanists, High Priest and founder of the Church of Satan, Anton LaVey, released his own version of the song in 1994 on a 10-inch record called Strange Music that I used to own, with vocals by his wife, Blanche Barton, who took over as High Priestess when LaVey died in 1997.
Infamous goth band Christian Death released their own spooky version of the song on their 1986 album Atrocities. Lydia Lunch's version from 1980 is also quite interesting, and Peter Wolf's from 1984. Even the Smithereens released a version of the song. Or how about Ricky Nelson? Sometimes 
Sunday's gloomy My hours are slumberless Dearest, the shadows I live with are numberless Little white flowers can never awaken you Not where the black coach of sorrow has taken you Gloomy Sunday Sunday is gloomy My hours I've spent them all My heart and I have decided to end it all Soon there'll be candles and friends that are sad I know Let them not weep Let them know that I'm glad to go Gloomy Sunday Death is no dream For in death I'm caressing you With the last breath of my soul I'll be blessing you Gloomy Sunday Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
Singer Andy Williams was arrested in Redlands, California on suspicion of drunk driving yesterday. Police said he had an open can of beer in his Rolls-Royce convertible. He was returning home from Palm Springs, where he had played in the Bob Hope Golf Tournament. Williams was taken to the San Bernardino County Jail. He was booked and released. Actor David Soule was fined $1,000 and given two years probation following his conviction in Pittsburgh on charges of disorderly conduct and failure to disperse. Soule and two others were arrested last Easter after disrupting services at a Pittsburgh area church in support of unemployed steelworkers. The other two were sentenced up to 12 months in jail. Ozzy Osbourne, former lead singer of the heavy metal band Black Sabbath, went before the press today to answer charges filed in a lawsuit against him and his record company. The suit contends Osbourne's music contributed to the suicide of a teenage fan. Gene Wolfe has the story. On October 27, 1984, 19-year-old John McCollum put a gun to his head and killed himself. His father claims John was listening to Ozzy Osbourne music at the time and that the music was one factor which led to his son's suicide. Paranoid was the last song that he listened to. It was on, on, the, on the side that was up when he died. Of course, the lyrics are, all day long I think of me, but nothing seems to satisfy. Can you help me? Oh, won't you blow my brain? Oh, yes. McCollum's suit against Osborne and his record company quotes another Osborne song, Suicide Solution, which includes the lyrics, Suicide is the only way out. In my opinion, the, the lyrics to Suicide Solution actually uh, tells you there's no, no other way out and that the suicide is the, what you should do. But today, Ozzy Osbourne and his manager and wife, Sharon, along with their attorney, Howard Weitzman, said that the charges in the lawsuit against him are unfounded. The factual basis for a lawsuit such as this is non-existent there is no evidence nor is there any way or will there be any way to adequately competently or legally prove that ozzy osborne is responsible for the death of this disturbed and unhappy young man what we'd really like to achieve would be that the record companies and the so-called artists would uh, take their moral responsibilities and not write seeing manufacture and sell this type of trash. Does this lawsuit make you rethink the kind of music you'll do in the future? No, no, it's all continuing to be Ozzy Osbourne forever. I mean, I'm not going to start singing Barry Manilow songs. A tape-recorded conversation between the pilot of Rick Nelson's plane and the Fort Worth Air Traffic Control Center has been released by the Federal Aviation Administration. Dick Shoemaker is in our new studio with details. Rob, the tape recording indicated the pilot of Rick Nelson's DC-3 told air traffic controllers in Fort Worth, Texas, quote, I've got a little problem. Six minutes later, the plane carrying Nelson and six others crashed in a field in North Texas. The singer and his band were en route to Dallas for a New Year's Eve concert when the plane went down, killing Nelson and six others. Today in Fort Worth, FAA officials play the tape recordings between air traffic controllers and the pilot. Did air traffic controllers do all they could? I think the controllers 
deal with the emergency as it's relayed to them. And as you can hear on the tape, he said, I've got a little problem. Now, that doesn't mean a necessarily a life-threatening problem. You get into interpretation. So I felt that's why I feel the controller uh, responded very well throughout. What caused the fire on board Nelson's plane has not yet been determined. However, federal officials are still investigating the possibility someone in the passenger's cabin was freebasing cocaine. Complete toxicology reports on the victims will be sent to the National Transportation Safety Board later this week. Mary. ABC News correspondent Joe Spencer was killed when a chartered helicopter crashed early today in south-central Minnesota on the way to cover a labor dispute. Also killed in the crash were ABC News producer Mark McDonough and the pilot. We'll be right back. Featuring Randy Rhodes, our lead guitar player. It's an American title, Suicide Solution. Sunday wouldn't be the last song to be accused of inciting suicide. John Daniel McCollum shot himself while lying in bed listening to an Ozzy Osbourne record at his home in Indio, California, and the 19-year-old's parents went on to sue Osbourne, alleging that the lyrics to the song Suicide Solution were a, quote, proximate cause of their son's death. He's a, quote, perfectly normal kid there who really doesn't show any signs of any depression at all, and happy, and all of a sudden, six hours, he's dead, McCollum's father Jack said. No one could explain it. The only thing we know is he was listening to this music. Full disclosure, John Daniel McCollum was a high school dropout with a history of substance abuse, living with his parents. From the Desert Sun, January 1986, Parents say heavy metal lyrics to blame for their son's suicide. More than two months after filing suit against rock star Ozzy Osbourne, an Indio couple who blamed the heavy metal singer for the suicide of their 19-year-old son are taking their story to a larger audience. Jack McCollum and Geraldine Luganbuehl say their son, John Daniel McCollum, was listening on headphones to Osbourne's Speak of the Devil album when he shot himself with a 22 caliber pistol on October 27, 1984, the family's Indio attorney, Thomas Anderson, addressed a Los Angeles press conference Monday, noting two of the album's songs, Suicide Solution and Paranoid, refer to suicide. It is my opinion those songs had a direct correlation in John's death, Anderson said. The lawsuit filed in Los Angeles Superior Court claims the youth followed the lyrics of Suicide Solution, which say, Where to hide suicide is the only way out. Don't you know what it's really about? Osborne and CBS Records, which is also named in the suit, should have known that the lyrics would be heard by and would influence people, quote, vulnerable to the ideas, suggestions, and emotions of rock music, the suit contends. Osborne, formerly with the group Black Sabbath, would not comment on the suit, said a spokesman at Jensen Communications, who refused to give his name. 
CBS Records Group would have no comment because the matter was in the courts. Spokesman Robert Atschuler in New York said Monday, The satanic influence of heavy metal is well known, Anderson said. Record albums of Ozzy Osbourne reflect the pentagram, which is symbolic of the devil, an upside-down cross, and many other satanic symbols. Jack McCollum told reporters his son was drinking the night he died, but I don't believe he had a problem with alcohol, he said. His suicide came as a total surprise. Lee Snellings, the investigating deputy Riverside County coroner, said Monday that McCollum's death was an out-of-the-blue thing, totally unexpected by the family. He said the investigation indicated that the young man did not seem to have any problems, was well-liked, and gave no indication he would take his life. The album was still revolving on a turntable when Snellings went into young McCollum's bedroom, and Snelling noted that the teenager died while listening to devil music. That reference to Osborne's music belonged in the initial coroner's report because, quote, it says devil right there on the record, Snelling said, and there were continual devil references on the album, he added. There's not a day that goes by that I don't think about him, McCollum's mother added, and I just kept saying, why? What was the reason? You know, he was fine, and then my daughter, I was talking to her and I said, why? Why did he kill himself? And she said, it was the music he listened to, Mom. From the lawsuit. On Friday night, October 26, 1984, John listened over and over again to certain music recorded by Osborne. He listened repeatedly to side one of an album called Blizzard of Oz and side two of an album called Diary of a Madman. These albums were found the next morning stacked on the turntable of the family stereo in the living room. John preferred to listen there because the sound was more intense. However, he had gone into his bedroom and was using a set of headphones to listen to the final side of the two-record album Speak of the Devil when he placed a 22 caliber handgun next to his right temple and took his own life. When he was found the next morning, he was still wearing his headphones and the stereo was still running with the arm and needle riding in the center of the revolving record. Plaintiffs allege that Osborne is well known as the, quote, madman of rock and roll and has become a cult figure. The words and music of his songs and even the album covers for his records seem to demonstrate a preoccupation with unusual, antisocial, and even bizarre attitudes and beliefs, often emphasizing such things as satanic worship or emulation, the mocking of religious beliefs, and death. The message he has often conveyed is that life is filled with nothing but despair and hopelessness, and suicide is not only acceptable, but desirable. Plaintiffs further allege that all of the defendants, through their efforts with the media, press releases, and the promotion of Osborne's records, have sought to cultivate this image and to profit from it. Osborne, in his music, sought to appeal to an audience which included troubled adolescents and young adults who were having a difficult time during this transition period of their life. Plaintiffs allege that this specific target group was extremely susceptible to the external influence and directions from a cult figure such as Osborne, who had become a role model and leader for many of them. Osborne and CBS knew that many of the members of such group were trying to cope with issues involving self-identity, alienation, spiritual confusion, and even substance abuse. 
plaintiffs alleged that a, quote, special relationship of kinship existed between Osborne and his avid fans. This relationship was underscored and characterized by the personal manner in which the lyrics were directed and disseminated to the listeners, directly addressing the listener as, quote, you. That is, a listener could feel that Osborne was talking directly to him as he listened to the music. One of the songs which John had been listening to on the family stereo before he went to his bedroom was called Suicide Solution, which, plaintiffs allege, preaches that suicide is the only way out. Included in a 28-second instrumental break in the song are some masked lyrics, which are not included in the lyrics printed on the album cover. Quote, Ah, no, people, you really know where it's at. You got it. Why try? Why try? Get the gun and try it. Shoot, shoot, shoot. These lyrics are sung at one and a half times the normal rate of speech, and in the words of the plaintiff's allegations, are not immediately intelligible. They are perceptible enough to be heard and understood when the listener concentrates on the music and lyrics being played during this 28-second interval. In addition to the lyrics, plaintiffs also allege that Osborne's music utilizes a strong, pounding, driving rhythm and... In at least one instance, a hemisync process of sound waves which impact the listener's mental state. Following these general allegations, plaintiffs allege that the defendants knew, or should have known, that it was foreseeable that the music lyrics and hemisync tones of Osborne's music would influence the emotions and behavior of individual listeners such as John, who, because of their emotional instability, were susceptible to such music lyrics, and tones, and that such individuals might be influenced to act in a manner destructive to their person or body. Plaintiffs further allege that defendants negligently disseminated Osborne's music to the public, and thereby, one, aided, advised, or encouraged John to commit suicide, or two, created an uncontrollable impulse in him to commit suicide, and that John, as a proximate result of listening to such music, did commit suicide on October 26, 1984. In the remaining two counts, plaintiffs allege, respectively, that defendant's conduct constituted one, an incitement of John to commit suicide, and two, an intentional aiding, advising, or encouraging of suicide in violation of Penal Code Section 401. In all four counts, plaintiffs allege that defendants acted maliciously and oppressively and thus are liable for punitive damages. Ozzy Osbourne was in England when he received an urgent phone call from his wife and manager, Sharon, from L.A. Quote, I got a phone call and Sharon said, Pack your bag, get on a plane to Los Angeles. You've got to get out here right now. I said, Wait a minute, what's happened? She goes, Just do it. Just get on the goddamn plane. I want to know what the hell is going on. What's happened? So I get on the plane and I'm flying for 11 and a half hours, get to L.A., go through the customs, and I come out the customs, not knowing any of what's going on. There are 200 cameramen there. So as I'm coming through the gate, I'm thinking I'm walking in front of some film star or something else. I'm looking over my shoulder like, what the fuck's going on? And so somebody pokes a mic in my face and goes, what have you got to say about the suicide? I'm thinking, what the fuck are you talking about? So I'm getting the car, it's right there, and Sharon tells me. Soon after landing, Ozzy was at a press conference in Los Angeles with a, quote, serious lawyer, Harold Weissman, 
an experience he described as, quote, very heavy. The difference in them, the public reporters, and the serious press are nothing like music press. They give you some really difficult questions to answer, and the lawyers just, don't you say a word, let me do all the talking. It's very difficult to sit there quiet when they're throwing questions at you all the time, but it was a very unnerving situation. This year, outraged parents even demanded congressional hearings. And in one extreme case, a father says the music, specifically Ozzy Osbourne's heavy metal music, made his son take his life. What you're about to see is Ozzy Osbourne in his music videos and some kids we taped who are heavy metal fans. What you're about to hear is the song Suicide Solution that a grieving father says contributed to his son's death. I'm a kid there who really doesn't show any signs of any depression at all and happy and all of a sudden six hours he's dead. Uh, no one can explain it. Other than the only thing we know is he was listening to this music. Jack and Jacqueline McCollum's 19-year-old son, John, shot himself in the head the night of October 26, 1984, while listening to the music of Ozzy Osbourne. The police photo shows the headphones were still on when he died. He had been um, dead for quite a while when I found him, so it was, it was horrible. Um, still pretty fresh uh, in your mind, um, isn't it? Yes. You know, there's not a day that... It, goes by that I don't, um, you know, think about it. And I just kept saying, why? What was the reason, you know? He was fine, and then uh, my daughter was, um, I was talking to her, and I said, why? Why did he, you know, kill himself? And she said it was the music he listened to, Mom. When the police arrived at the McCollum's house, they found Osborne records still on the turntable. Uh, final song on that side of the record was Suicide Solution, which to me says, made your bed, rest your head, but you lie there and moan. Where to hide? Suicide is the only way out. Trying to find a clue to his son's death, Jack McCollum has spent hours searching the lyrics uh, of Osborne's music. Some of the lyrics of Paranoid. All day long, I think of me, but nothing seems to satisfy. I think I'll lose my mind if I don't find something to pacify. Can you help me? Oh, won't you blow my brain? Now the McCollums are suing Osborne and CBS Records, suing for damages in the first case of its kind. How important was Ozzy Osborne and his music to your son? Unfortunately, he was uh, John's idol. I would wake him up in the morning, and uh, he would have the, his uh, headset on, and the music would still be going. The boy must have been pretty messed up before he ever heard an Aussie record. And uh, I mean, I can't help that, you know. I feel very sad for the boy, and I feel uh, terribly sad for the parents, because as a parent myself, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be pretty devastated if something like that happened. But no, if, and, I, and I have thoughts about this. If, it was, if the boot was on the other foot, I, I couldn't blame the artist. CBS Records wouldn't comment on the suit, but Osborne's attorney, Howard Weitzman, did. What happens if you lose? I think the effect in the industry would be disastrous. I think everybody that writes a song, every actor that speaks a line, every author that writes a piece, every screenwriter that writes a script is going to be looking over their shoulder, afraid that whatever they say could be misinterpreted by some very small percentage of individuals. And the real problem with a case such as this is they have totally misinterpreted what Ozzy meant to say. What did Ozzy mean to say? The word suicide solution is meaning suicide as, as, 
liquid, like solution as a liquid, not, like, not a way out. And the songs about like the dangers of alcoholism, like alcohol will kill her just like any other drug will. You know? It's just wine is fine, but whiskey is quicker, suicide is slow with liquor. And that, that, you know, that's easy. You know, just, it's just a terrible case of misinterpretation as far as I'm concerned. I don't think that we can prove that Ozzy Osbourne wanted John McCullough to pull the trigger. But the point is that they knew that this record was going to encourage or promote suicide. Tom Anderson is the McCollum's lawyer. He's also a born-again Christian, one of a growing number who have mounted a campaign against heavy metal music, insisting on its link to the rise in teen suicide. I've been studying this problem now for a year. And uh, there's a trend, and it's a frightening trend. Uh, and I'm concerned about that aspect of it. I think that we have in this case uh, uh, opposing forces of Satan and God. And I'm not trying to turn people into frogs. There's no, there's no backward masking. There's no hidden secret messages at all. It's just a goof-off. It's just entertainment, you know. It's like Ozzy puts his mask on and goes on and does his performance. It's just an art form, my form of art. That's all it is. I hope it entertains them. I hope it just makes them feel good. Osborne's form of entertainment in one concert included biting the head off a bat, but his audiences loved it. His latest album is in the top ten. I'm not what my image portrays me on stage. It's just a role that I play. I think the parents' fear comes from your role. That's what they're afraid of. You see a far more violence in a Tom and Jerry flick than you ever see on Ozzy Osbourne concert. I mean, that's where it's, if you're going to get down to it, kids of three and four watch, watch his mouse get, get his brains bashed in every morning on, on American television. Isn't that harmful? If you're going to start with Ozzy, you know, carry on, you know. Are we going to stop everything? And, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's all I keep saying to myself, why me? The lawsuit was eventually dismissed by the state of California in 1988, with the court declaring that McCollum's suicide was not a foreseeable result of listening to Osborne's song. But the family of another man, Michael Waller, brought a similar lawsuit against Osborne the same year, alleging that subliminal messages hidden within Suicide Solution caused their son to kill himself on May 3, 1986. From the L.A. Times, October 1990. On the night of May 2, 1986, Michael Jeffrey Waller attended a beer bash at a friend's house in Fitzgerald, Georgia, whose parents were out of town. Waller, a 16-year-old student who wasn't known to take drugs, spent much of the evening driving about, drinking beer, and listening to heavy metal music behind the house with his friends in the cab of his pickup truck. According to Waller's father and the police, Ozzy Osbourne's Blizzard of Oz was the last tape the teenager listened to before returning to the party. At about 2 a.m. on May 3rd, Waller entered the kitchen and asked his friends to take a seat on the couch facing him. After writing a suicide note, he picked up a handgun, leaned back on a kitchen stool, and blew a hole through the refrigerator door. 
He then raised the pistol to his right temple and pulled the trigger. Waller died immediately. Neither police nor Ben Mills, the Fitzgerald attorney presenting the lawsuit against Osborne, would reveal the contents of the suicide note. But Waller's father said the youth had been frustrated and depressed about a driving under the influence violation he received about four weeks prior to the shooting. Two days before his son killed himself, Waller said he had a talk with the boy and assured him that they would work things out regarding the pending DUI-related court date. What he said to me was, he said, Pop, I believe old Oz has the solution, the elder Waller recalled. But it wasn't until after the shooting, until I found the cassette in his tape deck, that I understood what the youngin was talking about. Prior to his suicide, Harold Matthew Hamilton, a 70-year-old high school dropout with a criminal record and a history of drug and alcohol abuse, seemed to be on the road to recovery. While he still used pot and alcohol, the boy had found a steady job as a cabinet maker and appeared to be stable and satisfied, his mother said. But in the early morning hours of March 20, 1988, Harold wrote a suicide note to his sister, borrowed a car and gun from a friend's trailer, and stopped by to visit his mother. He told her that he had just returned from a party in Charleston, South Carolina, where a girl he liked had rejected his advances. His mother said Harold seemed visibly upset and told her he intended to drive across the border to Augusta, Georgia to visit his sister. At 11 a.m., Hamilton's car was found by a stranger parked in the driveway of a home in rural Washington County, Georgia, 50 miles northwest of Augusta. Draped across the front seat with a pistol in his hand and a bullet hole in his temple, Hamilton was still alive. A cassette of Osborne's album Tribute was in the tape deck. Police rushed him to the hospital, but he died seven hours later. A coroner's jury ruled his death a suicide. I asked him, I said, Howie, what's wrong? said Hamilton's mother, recalling the conversation she had with her son seven hours before he shot himself. He said, Mom, you'll never see me again. From the dismissal of the Waller's lawsuit, Plaintiffs have steadfastly predicted that given the opportunity to thoroughly examine the song's suicide solution, they would be able to prove the existence of a subliminal message in the song. After their experts were given an unrestricted opportunity to find a subliminal message in the music in question, however, plaintiffs have been unable to produce any evidence which creates a genuine issue of fact concerning whether the song, Suicide Solution, on the album Blizzard of Oz contains a subliminal message. Plaintiffs have simply failed to produce any evidence from which one could even infer that there is a subliminal message in the song Suicide Solution on the album Blizzard of Oz. The court noted in its order denying defendants' motion to dismiss that the plaintiffs would be hard-pressed to avoid summary judgment in this action absent the presence of a subliminal message in the music of the defendants. Such is the case because music, in the form of entertainment, represents a type of speech that is generally afforded First Amendment constitutional protection. Suicide Solution wasn't written about, oh, that's the solution, suicide. I was a heavy drinker, and I was drinking myself to an early grave. That was the suicide solution said Osborne. Speaking about the allegations in the lawsuits, Osborne told Billy Morrison on Sirius XM, quote, Well, 
that was all taken out of perspective. So we wrote this song about, we were all doing some serious pounding of the booze back then. I'd been drinking heavily for a long, long time. And it's like, suicide solution means solution being a liquid, not a way out. People get the fucking thing wrong. Osborne also claimed that Suicide Solution was actually an anti-suicide song written about ACDC singer Bon Scott, who drank himself to death in 1980. That was news to the guy who actually wrote the lyrics, former Ozzy Osbourne bass player Bob Daisley, who penned the lyrics to many of the songs on Ozzy's early albums. He's dreaming, Daisley told the metal voice. I knew Bon Scott. Bon Scott died after I'd written the lyrics to Suicide Solution. It was my title, and it was about Ozzy. It was inspired by Ozzy's drinking, because he was drinking himself into oblivion lots of days, and it was affecting him. I even had a talk with him about it one day. He was getting drunk during the day. Suicide Solution, a song accused of inspiring an American teenager to commit suicide. Thank you for your time this morning. You're holidaying in Australia. Yeah, for six weeks. Right. Well, the situation of finding a 19-year-old young man with his headphones mm -hmm. on, listening to the album with the song that you wrote, Suicide Solution, with the 22 bullet that he just put into his head. Yeah. Do you feel any guilt? No, not at all, because the song wasn't uh, advising anybody to commit suicide, although the word suicide was in the title. The word solution is in the title, Suicide Solution. It was a warning against, basically against drinking yourself to death. Ozzy and I put that song together um, not long after Bon Scott, the singer from ACDC, had drunk himself to death. And also, I'd, I'd just start, started working with Ozzy. <clears throat> and um, I could see how much he was drinking. It was kind of like me pointing the finger at Ozzy as well, saying, look, just cool it with the booze. I mean, the opening lines of the song, uh, wine is fine, but whiskey's quicker, but suicide is slow with liquor. And it, it was, you know, it was a warning against drinking yourself to death. It was got nothing to do with ad advice. There's no subliminal negative overtones or anything like that in there the song. There was a lyric, where to hide suicide is the only way out. For yeah. a depressed adolescent, that's a, probably a thought that would stick with him. Well, I mean, the, the, if you single that line out, it may sound that way, but it, in context to the rest of the song, you know, the whole thing was about just drinking yourself to death, and it was a warning for anybody that, that thinks that drinking is a solution to any problem, then it isn't. You're just going to kill yourself. <clears throat> the, the, some of the views expressed by the, the heavy metal uh, uh, singers there, they're obviously out to incite the strongest possible reaction from their audience. And yeah. the consequences of those, <clears throat> those emotions being released can't be, uh, can't be fully, I suppose, understood. Do you, do you understand, the, uh, if you like, the damaging side of releasing those negative emotions? Well, yeah. I mean, other bands do do that, and sometimes purposely, just for sensationalism. But any lyrics that I write, always, I always try to sort of take responsibility for, you know, the people that are going to hear them and, and it, you know, who it may affect. <clears throat> Ozzy Osbourne is, has hold the distinction of being one of the few men ever to bite the head off a bird live on stage. Um, yeah, actually it wasn't bird. on stage, it was at a, a record conference. Was it? Yeah, and he, oh. he did that just to, just to freak him out. You know, he actually did bite the head off a, a live dove. It's an effective move. I think he was drunk at the time. <laughs> He'd have to be, isn't he? But you can see that role model <laughs> behaviour and, the, if you like, you know, the, the, oh, he's a, he's a self-destruction. Yeah, he's a pretty crazy guy, you know. And yeah. he, he, he does influence a lot of the young kids. But, I mean, if anybody's going to point the finger at anybody, I think the, you know, the parents should look at themselves in the mirror and go, hey, where did we go wrong? Because that kid was obviously very disturbed. 
to do something like that in the first place. Yeah. You know, what, what do you do? You sort of write a <coughs> warning on the album or something. After you listen to this album, try not to go out and kill yourself or anybody else. You know. <laughs> Maybe a thought for the future. Bob Daisy, thanks for your time. My pleasure. Bob Daisy, lyricist um, and the man uh, who wrote the lyrics on Ozzy Osbourne's album. More after this short break. Don't go away. Bob Daisley has sued Ozzy in the past over unpaid royalties, so he wasn't amused by the singer's foggy memory. He's got the audacity to say that he wrote the lyrics about Bon Scott when he didn't write any of the lyrics? Where to hide suicide is the only way out. Don't you know what it's really about? So here we are at the end of this episode, and I guess the question is, can a song make you kill yourself? From the National Library of Medicine website, the Ig Nobel Award for Medicine, one of the prizes given annually to scientists who have produced unusual research, was given this year, 2004, to a team of researchers who found that cities in which radio stations played a higher-than-average amount of country music, had a higher-than-average rate of suicide. The award went to Stephen Stack of Wayne State University, Michigan, and James Gundlach of Auburn University, Alabama, for their report, The Effect of Country Music on Suicide. Quote, We had hard data showing that cities with higher-than-average country music radio market share had higher white suicide rates. African-American suicide rates were not affected by the country music market. That can't be true. Let's... I'm going to test this out. Let's see. All right. Okay, I'm going to... There's just a spinning circle. I can't... It won't stop. It won't... 
I'm clicking on the pause button and it won't... I'm clicking and it won't stop. It won't turn off. I can't even turn... The volume won't work. The, the, the computer... It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.